This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross, who's off this week. My guest, Mo Ammer, is a comedian who brings a unique voice to his performances, rooted in his unusual background. Mo is short for Muhammad. He's Palestinian, but he grew up in Kuwait, where his family enjoyed a comfortable life until he was nine when the first Gulf War forced his family to flee to the United States in 1991. There, as he explained to Trevor Noah on The Daily Show, things were different. I, I went to a really nice private British English school in Kuwait, and then uh, we migrated to Houston, Texas. And, That's uh, a culture shock. It's a culture shock, and they put me in ESL class, which is uh, English as a second language class, and I was the first, only guy that spoke English in the class. <laughs> I walk in, all the kids are like, hola, tu eres en nuevo aquí? At a hint of a British accent, I'm like, sorry, uh, what language are you speaking? <laughs> All of a sudden, this other dude just rolls up out of nowhere. He's like, you're weird, dude. Why do you talk like that, eh? And that was my teacher. You know, it was a very weird <laughs> situation. Mo Ammer grew up in Houston, got into comedy, and, well, it's worked out. He's performed in 27 countries on five continents, had two Netflix comedy specials, co-starred in the Hulu series Rami, and he stars in a new TV series based on his own life, which he co-created, co-produced, and co-wrote. It's called Mo, and it premieres tomorrow on Netflix. Mo Ammer, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I got to tell you, I struggled a little bit when I was writing your introduction because I, I feel like if I, if I describe you as Palestinian, that doesn't quite capture the Mo Ammer I see in your staff. Um, you kind of have more than one identity, don't you? That's really interesting you say that. I mean, I, I definitely identify as Palestinian-American, but I, you know, it's one of those things that as a refugee, as I lead America, uh, someone is trying to fit in and, and feel like have some kind of sense of belonging, you kind of become a chameleon and you really start putting yourself in other people's shoes almost immediately to be like more relatable and understood. It's very interesting how that works, that naturally and organically just comes together that way. But um, yeah, I definitely identify as a Texan, Palestinian. <laughs> I mean, I know this feels like a juxtaposition and kind of like two worlds that should be colliding, but I feel very much at home with those two worlds. Right. And when people first met you, I mean, given your skin color, they probably assumed you were Mexican-American. And I can tell from the series that you speak, obviously, Arabic. You speak Spanish pretty fluently to me, uh, and at least a couple of three dialects of, of English too, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I can pretty much cover all the dialects in English. Uh, I do. I am conversational, completely conversational in Spanish. Uh, my grammar is not perfect sometimes, but yeah, I don't have any problems at all having a full-on conversation in Spanish and, and fluent in Arabic. All right. Well, I, I wanted to listen to a scene from the series Mo, which, as we said, premieres on Netflix tomorrow, and this will give us a little bit of sense of some of your linguistic uh, ability to, to fit in. Um, the, the series is about you, a character which named Mo, kind of pretty much you, in your 20s, I guess, single, living in Houston, dating a Mexican-American woman, which, of course, your, your Palestinian mom sort of disapproves of. This is a scene where you've just lost a job you had in an electronic shop because the owner was concerned about an immigration raid and you didn't have your papers. So you've returned to an old side hustle of selling knockoff merchandise out of the trunk of your car. And this scene happens in 
You've got your big car backed up to the edge of a, um, a strip mall, which you see plenty of in Houston. And there's this heavyset guy, a uh, white guy in a cowboy hat walking down the sidewalk. And you engage him and say, hey, you look like you got orthopedic shoes there. Does that hurt your back? And try and sell him a pair of shoes from the trunk. Uh, and there are these – they're imitations of these odd-looking shoes marketed by Kanye West, kind of in part made from the foam. The Easy Aldi. Foam Runners, yeah. and I swear by them, okay? The Easy, <laughs> they're very, yeah, they're the easy Foam Runners, and they are – I like literally mean everything I say in the <laughs> clip. <laughs> <laughs> well, here, you, you, you open this, and then you pull out a little stool. You stool, you got a little portable store there. So it begins with you engaging this fella. Let's listen. How you doing, brother? Beautiful weather, huh? Yeah, it is. Yeah, we're lucky. What do you got? Uh, orthopedics? <laughs> yes, sir. Slow down, slow down now. Don't hurt yourself. What are they, nine and a half? <laughs> got it again. Yep. Yeah, them old trusties. I bet they're doing a number on your lower back. God, my lower back is killing me. Same here. Till I switched over to Yeezys. Then my back pain disappeared. Thank you, Yeezys is what I say. Come on, let me show you something. Oh, no, I... Holy <laughs> You got a whole store in there. That's right, baby. I'm an entrepreneur. Look at this. Good for you. Thank you. Designer yet orthopedic. That don't look like anything I put on my feet. They look like alien shoes. Well, they are from whatever planet Kanye's from, but don't judge them till you try them on, brother. Come on. I... Come on in for a moon landing. And take 30 seconds of your time. Here we go. You gotta look after your lower back. Yeah, that I do. Here you go. Come on, give them a try. All right. These are genuine recycled algae. Whoa. Yeah? Whoa. Oh my goodness, look at that. Son, these shoes are golden. How much? Aftermarket, these go for about $350,000. Now, I'm willing to give them to you for $200. So I can't tell my wife I paid $200 for a pair of algae shoes. Brother, I smell what you're stepping in, okay? So I'm going to sweeten the pot. Now, for $300, I know. Oh, hold on a second. Hear me out. I'm going to throw in the Chanel purse, all right? Now, this will retail well over $1,000. You ain't going to find a better replica than this. She won't know the difference. And that is Mo Ammer making a sale in the series Mo, which premieres on Netflix tomorrow. Um, you know, we hear you speaking kind of the Texan version of English, which I will say I grew up in South Texas. I recognize that accent. Uh, you use that to connect to people, I guess, lots of, lots of times growing up, didn't you? Yeah, I think it's one of those things that I actually just connect with in general. Like, I mean, the Palestinian culture is is a folksy um, farmer kind of mentality in life. And uh, and when I came to Texas, it's one of the things that was really attractive to me was the country music, the folksy music, the the storytelling tradition of that. And I and I really just attach myself to it because it's in my blood. And and you know, the in the character in the scene itself, it's meant to be that I'm you know endearing to him and and develop trust. So you, you did sell knockoff stuff on the street. This is a real thing. No comment. Yeah, no, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely did. I was a teenager. Uh, it's just something that I just fell into. Honestly, I was wearing knockoff Versace sunglasses that I thought were cool. And someone was just like, hey, those are really nice. You know, um, you selling those? I'm like, yeah, it's my last one. And it just became my shtick where somebody would walk in where I see someone that might be interested in what I have. I'd put it on, I'd wear it, they'd comment on it, and then I would sell it. That's how it worked. I imagine you developed some kind of skills for reading people and communicating that, that probably helped in stand-up when you got to that. 
No, absolutely. Assessment of situations of people is crucial to be not only a great salesman, but a great, you know, stand up comedian. So it did help a lot, you know, and it's one of those things that when you experience such hardships, you become really good at, at like figuring out what's good and bad and following your gut, more so following your gut. Right. Like, you know, this could be a good thing when you should tap into that and you realize that you have a high percentage of hit rate where you're right. You start to trust it way more. Yeah. And when it's time to close things up and split, too, I imagine. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, we mentioned earlier that your family left Kuwait and ended up in Houston. Tell us a bit more about that. Your family was in Kuwait, had a comfortable life. And then the the first Gulf War happened, which was Saddam Hussein invading Kuwait. Um, how much do you remember of that departure? I remember all of it, every bit of it. That's why I recreated it in the uh, flashbacks as much as possible whenever budget allowed us to do. Uh, you know, I think it's one of those things that is not really, that's glossed over. It's such an important topic, the Gulf War, that really sparked everything, right? Even to this day, we're still dealing with those, with that with that war, this like this domino effect of political relations throughout the MENA region, you know, Middle East, North Africa. And I really believe that that was, that was one of the biggest turning points in that area. I mean, if you think about it, there wasn't any uh, American military uh, uh, presence there pre-Gulf War, and since then, we've never left, and we've been in present in that area ever since, and there's so many people that were affected by that war, um, you know, particularly a lot of Palestinians were affected by it, and to flee from there, it was like, now it's that they're, you know, think about my mom and my dad's perspective, this is the third, second or third time they have to flee because of being stateless, and, you know, to have to create a new life again. So this is something that was really important to me to show this like generational trauma, essentially, that that you're starting now to see it starting over in Houston, Texas. Right, they had fled Haifa before when the when the 47 war happened. Right. So they were 47. So then once the Israel became a state and then the United Nations was formed, um, if you were in the, some people were able to, some Palestinians were able to stay in the Israeli quote unquote territory. So those people are called Israeli Arabs and they're Palestinians, but they're referred to Israeli Arabs. And we had to, yeah, my family historically left Haifa and ended up in Burin, which is right outside of Nablus, uh, one of the biggest cities, I think, in the entire area. Why did your family end up in Kuwait? Well, it was before I was born, so I'll just tell you what I know. I know my father was offered a job at the Kuwaiti Oil Company as a telecommunications engineer, um, and that's why my family relocated to uh, Kuwait. Um, and, and so we settled there for a long time. My father was actually instrumental in building wireless communication between oil rigs and was, was one of the first people to build a radio station in Kuwait, he and his team. So we were there for, for years uh, before that, and they would visit regularly before you know everything blew up in, in Palestine and Intifada and created the situations became more and more and more tense and it became more and more difficult to go back and visit. So, so tell us what happened in Kuwait. I mean, you were there. Your dad was working in telecommunications, making a good living. Uh, you had a pretty comfortable life. What happened that forced you to leave? I mean, I know the Iraq invaded, but how did, how did your family experience that? Sure. I mean, I was a little kid. I was nine years old when that happened. So I, I was, you know, this was my first time seeing 
my parents worried about anything, right? Like something as dramatic as this. And I knew it was really, really serious. Uh, the conditions became like not really livable because of what Saddam Hussein was doing. He released a bunch of prisoners at that time and instructed them to rob the entire area. And everything just became so incredibly unsafe when it was... Uh, one of the safest places to be in the world. You know, it became so unpredictable and it was really scary time and turbulent time. So it was, it was at that moment that my father and my mother both made a decision together that we should leave um, and head to America. And that's why we ended up in Houston, Texas. But that is like not something that you just pick up and leave overnight. You have to, at that time we had to leave on a bus. And I remember this clear as day that's why I put it in the flashback in the, in the series is us fleeing on a, on a bus and, and leaving with whatever we had and my mom having to hide it hide the money strategically so it doesn't get taken from us through Iraq to Amman, Jordan finally we got our paperwork to leave my mom my sister and I actually left and ended up in Houston, Texas my mom actually went back solo that's how much of a gangster an incredible woman she is she went back to Kuwait to finish everything up with my father and my brother and it, it was a really delicate and difficult situation also politically it was really different right because at that time uh, you know Yasser Arafat gave his blessings to or support to uh, Saddam Hussein. So it became a really difficult time for Palestinians, even though it had nothing to do with us. You know, it was a political thing. And and that's what normally happens, right, where politicians uh, make decisions that affect the people that have nothing to do with anything. So we had to leave at that time. We had no other choice. So you were describing how your family left Kuwait after the uh, invasion by Iraq in the first Gulf War in 1991. You and your mom uh, and your siblings eventually made it to Houston. Your dad wasn't there for quite a while. Uh, he got there a couple of years later. It's in you... You got into school, and as we heard in that clip, it was a weird beginning. You were used to wearing a bow tie to school and speaking with an English accent, and everybody assumed you were Mexican-American. And y You managed. You made your way. And then... Your father died. Um, you were 14, is that right? What was the effect of that on you? Uh, it was incredibly potent. Uh, I didn't know. You know, so many things changed from 9 to 13 from my age. You know, it's like so many things were already changing so dramatically. And, and to lose my father was, was a devastating blow. Uh, you know, you have all the things going through your head. I didn't have enough time. What did I do? What did I say to him? I, you have regret. You go through all the motions of that. And I was completely lost, to be honest. Uh, I started skipping school, stopped being interested in it at all in high school. I didn't want to participate in anything. Uh, and it was really hard to focus and I just had it in my head. I was going to be a stand-up comedian anyway. Why do I need this? Uh, just forget this. It's a joke anyway. I just, I just had zero interest in anything other than being a stand-up comedian and entrepreneur. Like that's all I wanted. Uh, and then my teacher, Mrs. Reed, and Mrs. Broderick in the English class changed my life. And and she woke me up to it. She's like, "How would you feel if you don't graduate?" How would your father feel if you don't graduate? And it pierced my heart. <laughs> I'm like, it'd be devastating. I come from a highly educated family. This would be a, a really big black mark on us, like, and myself. And I don't want that. She goes, don't you want to be a stand-up comedian? I was like, yeah, absolutely I do. She goes, I'll tell you what, if you, don't, if you stop skipping, I'll let you do stand-up in class. 
I was like, what? Are you sure I can do stand-up in class? She was like, yeah. She goes, all you have to do is just sprinkle in something, because it was English class, if you can sprinkle in some Shakespeare or be creative and figure out a way how you can, you know, mix in the curriculum, I'll, I'll give you extra credit even, and I'll let you do stand-up on Fridays. I was like, this is sounds like a great deal. I was like, what's the catch? Because you can't skip anymore. You skip once, and it's over for you. I'm going to give you, I'm going to fail you, it's over. Let's back up a second. Um you said that you know you knew you wanted to be a stand-up comedian. How did you know that? What got you interested in comedy? First of all, I'd never heard of stand-up comedy. It's an indigenous art form to America. Right? There's three. It's jazz, hip-hop, and stand-up, so I didn't know anything about it. Uh, I went to the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo a few months after being in the States to kind of change things up. My family took me just to kind of get my mind off of things and to try to do something fun. And I saw Bill Cosby performing live. At the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo? <laughs> That's great. Yeah, so it was him co-head. He was co-headlining with the band Alabama. Uh, and I saw it, and I just, in front of 65,000-plus people, just telling these hilarious stories. And I looked at my brother. I was like, what is this? He was like, this is stand-up comedy. I was like, oh, my God, that's what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. And my brother was like, okay, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This kid's having a moment. He had no idea how profound of a moment it was for me and how, like, it was just, like, so real that this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. How old were you when that happened? I was nine. Oh, wow, you were little. Uh and how did you start doing it? You start cracking your friends up? Did you do it in front of a mirror? What did? You, how did you develop stand-up as a kid? I was always really funny. I was always telling stories. I never had like a that was just natural to me. Uh, and my mom would tell me like when I was a, when I was just started walking, I would walk in front of the television and turn off the TV and start doing gestures and making sounds. But uh, but that's how it worked out. And I did stand up in in high school. Like I said, I was doing it in classes and and I would do impressions of Chris Farley. Uh, and I would just like roast kids in class as Chris Farley. <laughs> so that and it just it grew in popularity and. I ended up doing different plays, and, 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 and that kept me going. And, and then when I graduated high school, I walked into the Laugh Stop, uh, which is a con- iconic comedy club. Unfortunately, it's now no longer open anymore in Houston. That I, I did shows. I did the Houston's Funniest Person competition, and that's where I learned about the world of stand-up and, and what it takes like in a comedy club, open mics, and building a set. And, and that's where I met my mentor, the owner of the Comedy Showcase, Danny Martinez, who ended up teaching me everything I needed to know about stand-up comedy, the art form, uh, you know, getting my wings and how to become a, you know, a proficient stand-up comedian. Well, you know, one thing I observed in the performances that I've seen of yours is the way you use your voice like an instrument. You can quickly get loud and kind of come up in pitch um, in a way that totally works. Was that something that, that you always did or is it something that you worked on? Oh, I learned that. Yeah, I learned that. It's so important. Yeah, I think comedians don't understand. Like, you have an instrument there with your voice. Man, it brings me so much joy that you recognize that. Uh, Yeah, it takes years to perfect something like that or or to to hone a skill like that. I I think that sounds, and again, that's something that Danny taught me early on in my stand-up career is how you use, you know, understanding what mic technique is and where you put the mic and the inflection in your voice and 
when you use it where. It's not something that I like deliberately try to do. It's just a natural thing that happens while I'm telling a story that I'm highly conscious of. So I just do it naturally in the moment. But absolutely, you should do that. And all the great comedians that came before us to use that, Carlin would do it all the time. He would switch it up all the time. He would get really low and he'd get really high. And the next thing you know, you know, he would do these things that are just so excellent when he's telling a story or making a point. You would just see the, the volume changes pretty regularly and the pitch and the inflection. It just makes everything's pop more. It's great. Everybody does it. Everybody that's excellent at stand-up as master of the art form does it. We need to take another break here. Let me reintroduce you. We're speaking with Mo Ammer. He has two comedy specials on Netflix, and he stars in the new series based on his life, which premieres tomorrow. It's called Mo, also on Netflix. We'll be back to talk more after this short break. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air. We're speaking with comedian Mo Ammer. He's of Palestinian descent. He lived in Kuwait until he was nine when the first Gulf War forced his family to flee to the United States. He grew up in Houston and is now an American citizen. He has two Netflix comedy specials and plays a character in the Hulu series Rami. And he's starring in a new series based on his life, which he co-created, co-produced, and co-wrote. It's called Mo, and it premieres on Netflix tomorrow. So you spent a lot of years uh, traveling uh, as a comedian. Before you got your citizenship, um, what was your immigration status and how did you travel? Oh, my God. That uh, pre-getting you, uh, you, my U.S. citizenship, it feels like a dream. Like, I don't even know how I did it. You had a refugee travel document that's issued. They still do this to this day. It's only valid for a year which is so difficult, it has its own implications, because uh, some countries require at least six months validity, right, to any you know passport or travel document. It takes four months to get, so you're just waiting forever for it. And then when you, and then nobody knows what it is, right? Nobody has a clue what it is. The people who should know what it is don't know what it is. Like the uh, people working at the airlines, when you first check in, no idea what it is. When you get to the immigration counter, 90 plus percent of the immigration officers from all around the world look at this as an alien landing. Like, what is this thing? You know? And they just freak out by it. How did you get here? Why are you here? The questions start to ensue. And then they realize how you know, terrible they were to me for hours and hours until they got confirmation that this is a real thing that you can actually travel with. Which makes it even more confusing is that it says this is not a passport the moment you open it, right? On the inside, it's big, bold letters. It says, this is not a U.S. passport. So it's like, well, what is this thing? Uh -huh. <laughs> and they would read that back to you. This is not a passport. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I know it's not a passport. Yeah, exactly. I know exactly this is not a passport, but it's a refugee trial, and I would have to become really knowledgeable about what it is when it was issued, uh, you know, what rights I have attached to it. You know, it was just a mess. Just an absolute so, mess. So Mo the salesman had to take over, right? I mean. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, in some cases, I had to, like, mislead them to enter the country in some cases I would have to just like completely mislead them or pretend like I don't know what they're talking about or just create some kind of situation or or tr attempt to big time it like uh, you know you know just you have to like I had to assess the situation and each one was very different than the other and then I would assess the person and the immigration officer and then I had to you know come up with a quick plan in that moment to get in how would you big time it with a skeptical border agent or, or airline employee? 
You have to be super confident, you know? And so you have to exude this confidence and and tell them exactly what they're doing. And once you tell them you're a comedian, if they understood what stand-up comedy was, it made things lighter naturally. But then you just have to be, like, super direct. And, and then you guilt them. Like, hey, this is my livelihood. I'm coming to work. Like, this is what I do. And this is where I'm going. And I, would you do this to yourself? Like, would you do this to people you know? Like, what am I doing here? Like, you would just guilt them into, like, basically let them see how racist this interaction is. And then once they start having that, that realization and they know that it's legal and they have to... They have to let you go through. They eventually let you go. You would cite Geneva Conventions. <laughs> no, I would. No, absolutely I would. I would cite Geneva Conventions, and this is my rights here. This is what it is according to the articles of 1948. Yeah, absolutely I would. Yeah. I mean, it's been a while, so I need a massive refresher, but but it was it was one of those things that I had to do. And I would also add to it like recommendation letters from the respective consulates i would carry those with me as well as references so if they had any issues i would get them before i leave before i left houston i would get those um recommendation letters and i would have to work that out right i would have to call the consulate general of jordan at that time like hey uh, can you connect me with the japanese consulate maybe he can write me a letter <laughs> So when I get there, if I have any issues, I can show that to them, or I would do that with all those countries. It was like a pretty great hustle for a kid that was like 18, 19 years old to think that far ahead. That's pretty insane. Wow. You know, who has those backup plans like that? And I learned that from my mom. It took you, I think, 20 years roughly from when you got to Houston before you got your citizenship. Why did it take so long? Um, it's just the asylee process. Uh, you know, dealing with the immigration process. And there was a couple of snafus that nobody really saw coming. But the asylee immigrant process is not like, it's not that easy. So you, your, your family applied for asylum and you were waiting for a, Correct. A, a, a hearing and a decision for all those years. Absolutely, absolutely. And more so, you know, my dad passed away at another layer of complexity. So we had to like start over because we didn't know who the lawyer was. And it was just a whole situation. And then by the time you get another attorney and you get another court date, uh, it takes a lot of time. It's not something that happens overnight. And then when you get there, it has a whole other layers to it. Like, oh, what do you need this or this paperwork or that? How can you prove this and that? Like, it takes a while. And then by the time you do get your asylum, if you're lucky enough to get it, you're not deported, it takes you five years to get your green card, another five years to become a citizen. Wow. It's just that's the way it is. That's the process. So, yeah, it takes time. You know, you you traveled a lot, and I, I happen to know that there's one occasion when you got upgraded to first class and seated next to Eric Trump, of all people. Uh, tell us that story. <laughs> well, I mean, it wasn't just a random sitting next to him. It was right after his dad was elected president of the United States, and no one from the Trump administration was speaking to the media. And I didn't even know this because I was so— engrossed in touring i just flew in from australia to new york new york i'm going to scotland glasgow and i couldn't think i didn't even know you know i was so exhausted i get there and i sit next to him i'm like is this a joke like i thought this was a joke i'm like am i being set up am i being recruited into the illuminati and i don't know it like what's happening you know <laughs> what's going on and um, I just initially thought that the, you know, the ticketing agent had a sense of humor. She was just like, oh, Eric Trump is on my flight. Let me see who's on standby here for first class. Oh, Muhammad Mustafa Amr, upgrade. You know, like I thought that was, 
<laughs> potentially what was going on. And I jokingly, you know, I just gave him the business. I, was, I wasn't holding back. And I just uh, told him, I was like, hey, this, this Muslim stuff has got to just stop. I don't know why it's happening. You know, you guys need to relax on that. I took a picture with him and I, you know, had a caption. It's been a while now, but something along the lines like, don't worry, guys, there's no Muslim ID cards. Da, 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 da. And I didn't know it was going to become like a global incident. <laughs> I did six hours later in Glasgow, and I have emails from every single publication and news outlets on planet Earth. I was like, holy shit, what did I just do? When you gave him the business and said, uh, you know, talked about the Muslim ban, how did he respond? He was just like, come on, my dad. He was like, the funny thing is like, uh, like uh, he was just like, you know, we do a lot of business in the Middle East. Come on, nobody's going to do that. You know, like I have Arab friends, you know, <laughs> he did one of those things, which was hilarious. And then I told him, I was like, look, I've got your dad all figured out. He knows the trigger words, right, for the media to cover him and create a spectacle, right? He knows those words. So he keeps the things that he can't touch. He keeps touching them and saying them over and over again. And he knows he's going to dominate the news coverage. That's what he does. Without even flinching, he goes, yep, that's exactly what he does. Let's uh, take another break here. Let me reintroduce you. We are speaking with Mo Ammer. He has two comedy specials on Netflix, and he stars in a brand new series based on his life. That premieres tomorrow. It's called Mo, also on Netflix. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Teladoc. 92% of people who have used Teladoc have seen an improvement in their mental health. Teladoc's online therapy offers access to licensed therapists right from your phone. Get help with anxiety, stress, depression, and more. Choose the right therapist for your needs with sessions wherever you're the most comfortable. Download the app or visit teladoc.com slash fresh air. One of the interesting things about your career, I read that relatively early in your career, you got gigs performing before American troops in Europe and then in um, in the Middle East, right? Um, yeah, Middle East, uh, Japan, Korea, Guam, Bahrain, Germany, Italy, Sicily. Yeah. Uh, what kind of stuff did you do before then? Did, did you, I don't know, did you play upon your ethnic background or... Yeah, no, it was important for me to be myself. Uh, This was like the first time I did those shows was pre 9-11. It was uh, April of 2001 was the first time I did those in uh, Italy, Germany and Sicily. I went with another comedian named Carolyn Picard who took me on the road with her. And it was, yeah, it was it was one of those things of just doing stand up. Right. It wasn't a big deal. And then 9-11 happens five months later. And I had these shows booked in Japan, Korea and Guam. I was like, man, I have to go now. It's a completely different reasoning now. It's not just, I'm not just doing stand-up comedy. I'm giving these guys a face, number one, uh, to, to people that are essentially faceless in the media, in television, entertainment. Uh, and, then, and then also for myself. Like, I have to see if I can be myself all the time. Because if, that is, if that's taken away from me in stand-up, then it's, everything is gone. I can't fake and be a different persona and different person. Like, no, I have to be myself. That is the funniest people, the most authentic people are, are the best stand-up comedians of all time. Like, I can't not be myself. It was a devastating time for me. I was really scared that I that I, that I might not have a career anymore. And uh, little did I know it was actually empowering for me and, and for them as well. Yeah, you know, it's it's been 21 years since then, and it's it's there's a generation of people who didn't experience that, and people can forget the intensity, you know, of the, well, I mean, anti-Arab and anti-Islam 
feeling which rippled through the population and I'm sure through service people that you performed for. Um, did you get blowback? I mean, how did you deal with it? Very few. I mean, it wasn't really blowback. It was discomfort. And I leaned into that discomfort because I knew it wasn't me. It wasn't, has nothing to do with me and it has everything to do with their perception or lack of information. So I never took it hard. I never took it to heart. I never was judgmental of them. I, I made sure that that I stand firm in who I am and let that performance, let the subject matter on stage and let the, the being funny is what's most important. Like you can't be already have some projections on you and then they and then they like, oh this guy sucks too. Like you gotta, right. you gotta <laughs> you be don't hilarious. Right, you know? Right, right. That's the number one thing. If you're funny then it melts most ice, right? So how did you lean into this discomfort? What did, what did that sound like on stage? Well, I ripped off the Band-Aid. I just would go up on stage. And when I say stage, I use that loosely because we're performing in, in like war areas in Iraq. And I would just go up on this gravel stage in front of all these troops who are completely strapped and, you know, armed. And I walk on and say, hey, guys, my name is Mo. It's actually short for mom. And surprise, bitches, today's the day. I thought that was a really good way to rip off the Band-Aid. <laughs> They would just laugh. They loved it, yeah. They ate it up. Oh, my God, they ate it up. And then I went into the storytelling and everything else, and it became such a strong relationship. And uh, I had a lot of very earnest moments with a lot of soldiers, and uh, they would just walk up to me and, and, and be very emotional with me, you know? It was incredible experience that I, I, I would never take that away because I get a lot of judgment from even uh, Muslims and Arabs like how dare you go over there and do this and they're killing us and this whole idea of that I was like well you know obviously I don't agree with war period this is all just devastating and, and the reasoning behind it is all false and it's bad and I just don't agree with it and also I think it's important to not shy away from it and be present in their life and to give them a new perspective and all it was like a win 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 you know and for me as well somebody who fled that region to begin with was really cathartic as well for me yeah, it was it was like there's so many pluses to going there that, that I couldn't imagine not doing it. I'm so glad I did. And the emotional moments that you had with soldiers, what kind of things did they say to you? It was some remorse. Uh, some of them cried on my shoulders. Uh, some of them had a lot of respectful things to say. And some of them were just acknowledging how wrong they were about the projections they had upon the region and the friends that they made that are local, that are Arab, that are Muslim. They found to be like really profound moments. And since I came and performed there and we had moments where we could share with each other and have tea and whatever is afforded to us to have a drink together, it was... It, it was a really um, potent and hyper-real moment. Wow. I mean, it, it can't get any realer than that. You know, in the your Netflix special, Mohammed in Texas, you end with a really touching story um, of you that now that you got your American passport, um, you went and paid a visit to the village near Nablus where your family had come from. Was that your first time in Palestine? Yeah, that was my first time there, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, what what happens in the stand-up special is you see you describing some things about this visit, and we see footage from the documentary, and, you know, you talk about tender moments with your family, aunts and cousins, and then you see a mosque, and you go and pay a visit to this mosque in the middle of this town where you pray. 
Uh, and then men in the mosque insist that you say the call to prayer, which is, you know, broadcast uh, from a little sound system in the mosque, and the whole village hears it and knows that it's time for prayer. Um, and you say, no, 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 I can't do this. And well, they say, well, don't you know the prayer? You say, well, don't you know the call? And you say, yes, of course, I know the call, but I can't, I can't. They just absolutely insist, and you agree <laughs> to do it. And so now I want, at this point, I want to pick up the story from the special where you're describing the moment when you have agreed to go uh, and do the call for prayer. Let's listen. And I walk up, and I was like, cousin, be next to me because I'm nervous. Make sure I don't mess up. So I do the call for prayer throughout the whole entire village. And I'm overcome. I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. What is this thing that's been written for me? I can't believe this happened. Right as I'm thinking this, a man just crashes right into the masjid. <laughs> Who did the call for prayer like this? And everybody sells me out. This guy. This guy did the call for prayer. This, uh, this guy did the call for prayer. I was like, yo, forget y'all, man. Y'all forced me to do the call for prayer. He's like, why'd you do it? I was like, I just told you they forced me to do the call for prayer. He goes, well, you just did it 10 minutes early, bro. You did it 10 minutes early. I was like, that clock is flashing, man. It's saying it's time. He goes, that clock is 10 minutes ahead. I was like, I don't know. That's a digital clock. Push the little buttons and it'll fix the whole thing, okay? You want me to do it? And then he goes, wait, 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 wait. I've been in the village my entire life. I know everyone in the village. Who are you? I've never seen you before. Who is your father? I tell him who my father is. He goes, oh my God. He goes, oh my God. Your father is Mustafa? I was like, yes, my father is Mustafa. He goes, you know who installed the sound system in this masjid? Your father did. It was truly one of the most beautiful things I've ever experienced in my life. And that's our guest, Mo Ammer, from his Netflix comedy special, uh, <sighs> Mohammed in Texas. Does it still give you a chill to hear that? Yeah, man. Chokes me up. I can't believe that happened. You know? It's crazy. It's absolutely mind-blowing. Just, and I meant it. Like, what is this thing that's written for me? <laughs> it's, it's wild. Yeah. I mean, it's like this... The mosque is centuries old, and there's this thread pulling you back to it. Um, yeah, and then to find out that that, because my father was a telecommunications engineer, but, but more this, more so than that, he was really um, familiar with technology of all sorts, from televisions to radios, and apparently, this is what I learned, like your father had a shop here in Burin, and he would teach people what technology was, because nobody knew what it was, and he made a joke, he's like, ah, before your dad, they used to plant antennas in the ground and pour water on them, hoping they'd get a signal, <laughs> you know, and he was just making an analogy of, of what my dad did for the town, and he goes, yeah, your dad's the one who installed the sound system. I was like, are you kidding me? Wow. Like, that is just mind-blowing. Well, Mo Ammer, it's been fun. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. I've had a great time. Mo Ammer has two comedy specials on Netflix, and he stars in the new series based on his life, which premieres tomorrow. It's called Mo, also on Netflix. Coming up, Kevin Whitehead reviews the new album from jazz drummer Billy Drummond's quartet. This is Fresh Air. Over the last 30 years, jazz drummer Billy Drummond has made hundreds of records with, among many, many others, horn players John Faddish, Javon Jackson, and Marty Ehrlich, and pianist Rini Rosnes, Steve Kuhn, and Carla Blay. He also records as a leader. 
Jazz critic Kevin Whitehead says Drummond's new quartet album is a treat. Drummond's quartet on Jackie McLean's Little Melanie. The sound of a drummer keeping time on ride cymbal is a familiar jazz marker, maybe even a jazz cliche. True, some drummers keeping time sound like they're on autopilot, self-hypnotized, but not the best ones like Billy Drummond. His ride cymbal beat is lively, varied, and full of passing cross rhythms. The sound of a musician fully engaged, hearing and reacting to everything happening around him. Saxophonist Dana Stevens with Billy Drummond's quartet, Freedom of Ideas, from their new album, Valse Sinister. The leader doesn't take many solos, but he doesn't need standalone spots to show his stuff. He conducts a lot of side business while keeping time. Great jazz drummers are motivators, prodding their comrades and making sure everything swings in an interactive way. This is Micah Thomas on piano. The title track of Valse Sinister is a gem of a waltz by Drummond's old boss, Carlo Blay. Dana Stevens plays it on soprano sax, whose bright tone suits the melody and leaves exposed the rhythm section sideways moves underneath. On bass is Desron Douglas.
Valse Sinister by Carla Blay. The slow ballad and one standard on the album Valse Sinister is David Raxon's 1944 movie theme, Laura. Billy Drummond's Quiet Grace with wire brushes reminds me of the great tap dancer Bill Robinson doing a rhythmic shuffle on a sandy surface. But Drummond can also be a little contrary. On Billy Drummond's album, Valse Sinister, there's also music by pianist Stanley Cowell and Frank Kimbrough and drummer Tony Williams and by members of the band. The quartet revived the late trombonist Gratian Moncour's Frankenstein from 1963, a minor tune with odd chord changes, the kind of offbeat choice that helps make this album a treat. It's not surprising that a leader in the habit of attentive listening would turn up some good old tunes that other folks overlook. Kevin Whitehead is the author of the book Play the Way You Feel, the essential guide to jazz stories on film. And he writes for Point of Departure and the audio beat. He reviewed the new album Valse Sinister by Billy Drummond's quartet, Freedom of Ideas. On tomorrow's show, the risk of growing tension between China and the U.S. Michael Beckley says China is engaged in the largest military buildup since World War II, and is being increasingly aggressive with its Asian neighbors and with the United States. Beckley's new book with Hal Brand is Danger Zone, The Coming Conflict with China. I hope you can join us. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies.